0: We returned this morning after a brief hiatus uh, last week to pick up again at Genesis chapter 49 and to this uh, testament of Jacob, as we've called it, delivered by him from his own deathbed to his sons gathered about him, to Genesis chapter 49. It uh, may seem to you, by the way, after the high adventures of the book of Genesis that these uh, closing chapters of the book are a bit of an anticlimax, but if you look more closely, you will find that what is happening here is really like the the snap of a slingshot. And you remember those old slingshots? Like the one we sang about in Sunday school as children, David picks up the stone and puts it in the sling and round and round it goes and round and around and around we'd sing and so on. Still today, those slings are used in the uh, Middle East. A piece of cloth, basically, with a stone or some sort of projectile in it, slung round and round until it picks up speed and then at maximum velocity, uh, it's velocity, it snapped and the stone flies to its target. That's what this chapter is like. It's, uh, it's like the last round of the sling. From these last chapters, God's people are propelled forward, sent ahead into the future. What will come of them? Now we've already begun to answer that question in the first verses of this chapter in Jacob's words to Reuben and to Simeon and Levi and to Judah. Now let's pick up at verse 13, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, open our eyes, we pray, to see marvelous things in your law, our ears to hear them, our hearts to receive them. Encourage, strengthen, embolden. Steal us, our Father, for the great work of your kingdom and its advancement and our part in it. By the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward." I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's foot, sh- food rather, shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. blessing of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now, I know that you remember that we took a week each to consider the first three pronouncements that Jacob had to make to his sons. Now it's as though we've kicked into fast-forward mode, taking up the rest of what Jacob says all at at one time. You may well be wondering why the change of approach. Well, it is true that we could uh, (coughs) very well take an entire week or even many weeks uh, to consider just what Jacob has to say about Joseph and to Joseph, about the great names of God even that are used in blessing Joseph. But I'm not convinced that we're going to gain the greatest blessing from these verses by taking them one by one, one son at a time. For one thing, these verses are, to be quite frank, fraught with translation problems, not to mention questions of interpretation. It's been somewhat amusing to me and interesting to witness in the course of this week of reading several commentaries, different men seeking the application of these prophecies that we've just read in the scripture and disagreeing as much about the applications of those prophecies as they do the translation of the Hebrew itself. Zebulun, for example, is said to dwell by the seashore, but we have no indication in the Bible that later on, when the land of Canaan was divided among the tribes, that Zebulun's land even met the shore. Uh, leading some scholars to assert that living by the seashore must be an idiom for something else. The blessing on Asher, one Bible scholar says, may be taken either as a straight comment or as a compliment. Or even a mild rebuke. I'm not saying, of course, that these prophecies did not come true. Of course, they did. That they were not fulfilled perfectly. I'm as certain that they did and were as I am that I'm standing in this pulpit before you right now. Nor do I doubt the benefit that might be gained by going and picking verses apart one by one. It's marvelous, for instance, to note that the careful plays on words pepper these prophecies. The the totality of the blessing upon Joseph's tribe, for instance, is heard in the Hebrew alliteration. You hear between heaven, the Hebrew is shemayim, and breast, shadayim. Between deep, Tehom and womb, rahem, or the prophecy about gad, that is a one long uh, pun, four of the six Hebrew words containing the consonants we would call them in English, g-d. But I want for us to hear this passage today the way our spiritual fathers and mothers would have heard it, especially when it was first read to them preparing to enter the promised land, uh, perhaps still in uh, in the wilderness, wandering some 400 years after this meeting took place between Jacob and his sons. What effect would this passage have had on the Israelites at that time? And what effect must it have on us today? Well, I would argue that the effect is really about the same in both cases. Let's start with the Israelite. Reading this passage or hearing it read to him, he would immediately recognize that this is very important, terribly important, an explanation of things, of his nation, of uh, his national identity, of his personal identity and his place in this world. Not far behind these verses, he remembers a, a promise that is lingering, that is developing. God had promised, remember, to Abraham to make him a great nation and to make him a blessing to the nations. And here at Jacob's deathbed, that promise is taking on flesh and blood. For the first time, in fact, in verse 28, these are called not merely brothers, but tribes. You see how things are developing and how in the history of these tribes the promises made to their father Abraham would take shape. Here in broad strokes then, the future is painted in the decline of the tribes of Reuben and Simeon that we considered a few weeks ago, in the rise of Judah and of Joseph's tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the oppression of Issachar, and Dan, and, and, uh, and Gad, here is a history developing of the people who would eventually re-enter the promised land, go back to Canaan, and then, and fill it, and ultimately, and here it comes to you, and to me, eventually to fill the whole earth the Israel of God, from pole to pole, Abraham and his spiritual seed. Here, as a matter of fact, is painted the life of the church, of the kingdom of God, not only in the ancient Israelites' day, but in our own day as well. Here at the end of Jacob's life, And at the end of this majestic book of scripture, we look back over the history of our spiritual fathers and mothers. We see the different characters that must make up the people of God. Characters marked, alas, far too often by rivalry and cruelty. Too often given over to their passions. But that is not all we see. We have also witnessed the grace of God in the lives of these men who were once lost and now are found. Men who at one time couldn't have given a plug nickel for the life of their very own brother, and who turn right around as Judah did for Benjamin and now are willing to lay down their lives for their brothers. And so it's continued. Still today, the church is made up of a people redeemed from evil, purified by the only thing that can do it, the grace of God. <clears throat> that is not to say, of course, that <clears throat> we do not have our ups and downs in the church, just as Israel continued to do. We scan the history of our spiritual ancestors and see the moments of sterling faith, the exodus out of Egypt, the conquest of the promised land, the faithful kings who glorified the Lord. We see also the moments when the church has covered itself in something other than glory. We see the days of faithlessness, of worldliness and corruption and darkness, In the wilderness, in the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The mixing of wicked kings with the good. And the thing is, the pattern continues down to this very day. Faith in the church is mixed with unbelief. Sterling obedience with weakness and disregard for the law of God. Advancement in some areas, loss of ground in other fields, even in the life of individuals, even in the life of an individual congregation. Yet this one constant remains. The sovereignty of God over the life of His church. So it was then, so it is to this very day. God continues to bless His church, to draw sinners to Himself with the gospel from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. If Israel stood amazed to consider what God had done in the lives of 12 men by their day, (coughs) how much more must we stand amazed when we look at what God has done with them today? spread over every continent of the globe. Now accounting for roughly one-third of the world's entire population and growing the church is. I say the one constant that remains is the sovereignty of God over His church. Now look at this sovereignty with me this morning in three ways. First, remark with me at the sovereign choosing of God. Now look at this this little family gathered around Jacob's bed. Nobody's in the world. A group of despised shepherds, herdsmen surrounded by the pomp and wealth and glory of Egypt. Yet God has set His eyes on them. And that little group, that little family, I tell you, were you or I in the place of God, would we have chosen this group? Would you have chosen this group in which to invest your kingdom? I tell you, we would not have. We would not have chosen this ragtag group in which to invest God's kingdom. We would have seen the wealth of Pharaoh. We would have seen the sophistication of the education, of the culture, and we would have chosen a more glorious and fantastic group with which to begin. But as it is, as the Scripture says, it was not because you were more in number, than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It is because the Lord is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you. And so it continues today. God grows His church not by looking to what is flashy or impressive as the world counts these things. He's not not stocking His church, filling it with superstars. You would not, in the making of a a television program about the rich and famous, begin with the church. Unless, of course, it were to ridicule some of the excesses of popular American evangelicalism. No, in the genuine church, <coughs> the pattern continues today. God chooses what is low and what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast, none of us, in the presence of of God he' still, in his sovereign choosing, is making a kingdom of kings and queens, out of ragtag paupers, out of the nobodies, worse, out of the despised of the world. That is his pattern and is his pleasure. And what may we say but that he must do this in order that he should receive all the glory and honor and praise. Second, note well the sovereign placing that God does with his people. Much of what we've read here in Genesis 49 has to do with the places where the tribes that will come from these men will live in the promised land, where he will place them in Canaan. As I say, some of it remains shrouded in ancient mystery to us. We can't understand some of the language and how it all finally worked out. <clears throat> but this we do know just as certainly as then. Still today, God determines not only the boundaries of nations, of Iraq and Iran and the United States and Canada and so on. I say not only the, the boundaries of the nations, but the place where His people, who transcend national boundaries, will live and prosper. Now scan the history of the church over the centuries. Think, think back over the centuries of church history, and you see the finger of God moving His church, expanding His kingdom here and then there. And then over here as he pleases, according to his sovereign placement. From the day of, of Pentecost, the gospel spread out from Jerusalem. What became of all of the apostles, we are not entirely certain, but we understand that Thomas went as far as India, where still today there is a Christian church that bears his. Name there. Paul went as far as Spain, John to Ephesus. Others went in other directions, so that by the middle of the first century, just a couple of decades after Christ's ascension into heaven, Christians numbered in the thousands. So that so much so that Nero could actually in AD sixty four blame the Christians for the fire in Rome. The church continued to turn the world upside down in the second and third centuries until by the fourth century, though she had been persecuted by the best of them, the Christian church began to be officially tolerated, and then even the state religion. One in ten in the empire, it is estimated, was a Christian by 325, there were more Christians east of the Holy Land than west. Alas, as in an ancient Israel, so in the church, nominalism and heresy took their toll in combination with the power that the church inherited. A spiritual decline took place that threatened even the gospel itself such that the power and wealth became the driving force behind the church's leadership. And by A.D. 1054, the church was split east and west, mainly over power struggles. The papacy in the west consolidated and wielded huge amounts of power and influence in Europe, but it was also during those same Middle Ages that the church expanded all the way to China, where it thrived for centuries until it disappeared under imperial purge. In the West, corruption reached the terrible heights that finally the Reformation had to come, and come it did, through an unexpected way, through the writings of a German monk named Martin Luther. Soon the truth spread like wildfire over Europe, and the power of Rome Was broken. And periods of nominal Protestantism were broken by reformations and revivals in the 17th and in the 18th centuries. In the last century, in the 20th, Christianity has waned in our own country under mainline Protestantism. But even as that light has faded in our own country, The fruit of the great missionary enterprises of the 19th century has resulted in the expansion of God's kingdom in places like Africa and India and China and South America. Today, as sovereign providence would have it, we are now watching an astonishing sight as third world bishops are now chastising Western liberal Anglicans for their departure from the Scripture. Had you told someone 150 years ago that that would be the case, they would have absolutely been astounded. That, my friends, is the sketchy detail, of course. But it... Sketchy detail of the sovereign placement of God's kingdom where he will. And he did it. Like with the tribes, he has done it. Placing them in Egypt, in that hot house of Egypt, to grow into a great nation. Then giving them the land in Canaan. So today he continues to place his people and his church just exactly where he pleases. Now in Egypt, now in Canaan, now in America, now in Korea, and more and more all over the face of the globe, from pole to pole. God sovereignly chooses His church. God sovereignly places her. And third, consider with me the sovereign preserving of His church. Look at the ways he's preserved her through, through the famine in Egypt, <clears throat> through the wilderness, through the apostasy of her ministers in Israel, through eventual exile to Assyria and Babylonia, through the terrible persecutions, the bloody persecutions of the Roman emperors who unleashed their worst upon her through the theological darkness that has fallen upon her from time to time, through the persecutions of Rome and the episcopacy in Europe, through the skepticism of the 18th and 19th centuries and into the 20th, and even into our very own day, where conversion to Christ in some places, even today, this very day, means maiming and torture and worse. Think of the little girls in Pakistan, maimed and acid poured over their faces in recent memory. Yet the church grows and it thrives. Sire, said Theodore Beza to King Henry of France, Sire, it belongs in truth to the church of God in the name of which I speak to receive blows and to give them. But it will please your majesty to take notice that it is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Or as G.K. Chesterton put it so wonderfully, five times the church has gone to the dogs and each time, it was the dog that died. What we are witnessing, dear flock, even on our own case, is Christ's own promise to build His church against which even the gates of hell will not prevail. In fact, he's not merely preserving his church. He is advancing her mightily and, and filling the earth with those who bow the knee to Christ, to him and to his son. Nations have risen, nations have fallen, empires are here and then they're gone. Even our own grand experiment in the new world is slowly grinding itself to pieces after only 200 years of existence. But the church lives on and ever will, because she is sovereignly preserved, protected, advanced by God. Oh, and by the way, it's not because of us, it's not because of us any more than it was because of those men. Of Israel. Just look at them. No, look at us. I say it's not because of us that the church continues to grow, but rather in spite of us. In so many ways, God's kingdom marches on from strength to strength. Till she pass through those gates on which the scripture says are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, the gates of heaven. This, brothers and sisters, is what must fill our spiritual eyes as we look on the scene of Jacob's deathbed here. The sovereignty of God choosing, placing, and preserving His church, including you and me and this very congregation through every day of her perilous journey in this life and into the next. Far down the ages now, much of her journey done, the pilgrim church pursues her way until her crown be won. The story of the past comes up before her view, how well it seems to suit her still, old and yet ever new. Tis the repeated tale of sin and weariness, of grace and and love yet flowing down to pardon and to bless. No wider is the gate, no broader is the way, no smoother is the ancient path that leads to light and day. No sweeter is the cup, nor less our lot of ill. T'was tribulation ages since, tis tribulation still. No slacker grows the fight No feebler is the foe, nor less the need of armor tried, of shield and spear and bow. Thus onward still we press, through evil and through good, through pain and poverty and want, through peril and through blood, still faithful to our God and to our captain true. We follow where He leads the way, the kingdom in our view. Amen.